All right, good morning. Good morning. Glad to be back with you today. I'm trying to remember exactly where we stopped last time. It's been a couple of weeks from Revelation chapter 2. Um, I, think I'm, I think we got through verse 23, so my aim today is to finish chapter 2, verses 24 through 29. This is still in the heart of Christ's message given to the church at Thyatira, which is the unrepented church, the corrupt church. Keep in mind that these churches which are addressed are local church bodies that existed in John's day. They're types of churches that exist at all points in church history, and they are a prophetic foreview of how church history would play out until Christ comes for His church um, prior to the Great Tribulation and Christ's setting up of a millennial kingdom. I believe all these things fit together nicely, and I think these churches which are addressed characterize specific ages of church history, and that spirit continues until the end of the church age. And so the spirit that is at Thyatira is obviously evident today. The spirit that was at Pergamum is evident today. Just as all those spirits are evident today and culminate in that kingdom of the beast. Okay? So, um, I'm just going to read verses 24 through 29. But I want to start at the end of verse 23 with just a comment. Christ has spoken already about who is going to be judged in this church. It would be Jezebel herself. It would be those who commit adultery with that spirit unless they repent. And it would be the children or the offspring of this unholy union. And then Christ reminds the church that He is the one that searches the reins and the hearts. He is the one that knows the motives. He is the one that knows the true nature of ministry in the church. And that He would judge every one of you, that is the church, according to your works. Then it says in verse 24, But I, unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which you have already hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father." And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. I want to very briefly go back to this last phrase in verse 23, according to your works. Jesus said, I will give unto every one of you according to your works. The judgment of God, whether upon the believer or the non-believer at that great white throne judgment, is always according to to your works. Okay? Someone turn to 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 and then I need someone else to look up 1 Corinthians 3 11 through 15. Now in terms of judgment, when it comes to the church and the born again Bible believing Christian, there is the judgment seat of Christ before which all of us must appear to give an account for the things which we have done in our body. And the Bible speaks here in Corinthians about that judgment seat of Christ trying our works that are done for the Lord. 
trying them by fire. Many things that we think we have done for the Lord will be like hay, wood, and stubble. It'll burn up in the fire. And Christ knows what was done for Him and what was done for us. But thankfully at the judgment seat of Christ, though works may be burned up, yet we ourselves will be saved, yet so as by fire. That judgment seat of Christ is not for eternal damnation. It's for reward. And it is according to our works. Some would be content to say, I'll be okay with just a little corner cabin in glory. I don't need any rewards. I don't want to stand before Christ in that day when His saints bow down and worship Him as pictured in Revelation 4 and 5 and have nothing to offer at His feet. I don't want to be ashamed in that day. Someone read 2 Corinthians 5.10, please. Let's try to make this snappy if you guys don't mind so we can... Okay, that's written to the church. We all, the church, must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is not the great white throne judgment in Revelation, at the end of Revelation, where the dead, hell and the grave give up the dead, and the sea give up, gives up its dead, and all stand before the faceless one on a throne. Okay, 1 Corinthians 3.11-15. Okay. Every man's work. The foundation is Christ, but we are known, though many have built upon that foundation things that will not withstand the judgment seat fire. Worthless. Even to the point of the church at Laodicea, Christ is not even in the church anymore. He's outside the church. So Christ is reminding the Christians at Thyatira or the church in general that I will judge you according to your works. Okay? Do you want to stand before me ashamed in that day? Not, that doesn't mean eternal damnation, but ashamed in the presence of Christ? Having built upon me nothing but wood, hay, and stubble? Or do, is your desire to stand before me with reward because you've built gold and precious things upon me, the foundation, the only foundation? Now, keep in mind that the righteous during that judgment seat of Christ, which I believe takes place in heaven during the period of tribulation that is being poured out upon the earth. After Christ raptures His bride and we are taken to heaven to escape the wrath that is to come, I believe that judgment seat of Christ takes place in heaven. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 12 about how the dragon Satan is cast from heaven and woe unto those that dwell upon the earth at that time before He's angry. He knows His time is short. And I believe it's at the completion of that judgment seat of Christ that Satan, the accuser of the brethren, is cast out from heaven. And boy, is he angry. His time is short. And that's why he goes after Israel. He goes after everyone that might profess Christ or get saved during that tribulation with a persecution that has never been seen since the beginning of time. Jesus tells a parable about the wedding feast in heaven 
which I believe takes place prior to the coming of Christ with His saints at the second coming, that a man shows up in that feast without a wedding garment. And in this parable, the bridegroom wants to know, what are you doing here? You're not welcome here. And he's instructed, the people are instructed to bound this man hand and foot and cast him out of the wedding feast because he's not welcome. I believe that's Satan. I believe the accuser of the brethren stands before God accusing us at that judgment seat. But none of his accusations stand up because that one drop of blood from Jesus Christ paid for our sins. And that accuser wants to hang around and sow discord even after that judgment seat is complete. And Christ says, cast him out. And that dragon is cast from heaven and he comes to earth and he knows his time is short. That's a whole other topic. I really don't want to get into that in too much detail, but it's interesting how all of that fits together. Now keep in mind that the wicked, those that perish in this life without Christ, are also judged according to their works. People do not go to hell because they reject Jesus Christ as Savior. They go to hell because of their works. Now before you flip out at what I'm saying, somebody turn to Revelation 20 verses 12 and 13. Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 and 13. Listen to the judgment that's meted out here at this great white throne. So twice here in this passage, we're told why these wicked were judged. What were they judged according to? Their works. Were they judged according to whether they accepted Jesus Christ? No. They were judged according to His works. Men go to hell because of their sin. And just as the righteous are judged according to their works for the purpose of reward, men are judged according to their works for the purpose of eternal damnation. So, let me say this. There are actually two ways to get to heaven. Not one. There are two ways to get to heaven. Somebody turn to Romans chapter 2. And I know if this, this word is taken out of context or it's spliced from what I'm about to say, I'm going to be accused of rank heresy. But we have to be taught by the Scriptures. Revelation chapter 2, verses 7 and verse 10. Somebody read that. I mean, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 2, 7 and 10. To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Verse 10. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Is there anything mentioned about Jesus Christ when it talks about eternal life here? No. Those who work righteousness. There, is two, there are two ways to heaven. One of those is to live a perfect life without sin. You live a perfect life without sin in thought, word, or deed. To you belongs eternal life and immortality. There's another way to heaven if you live with sin, and that is to fall upon the mercy and the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, if you continue to read the book of Romans, Paul has made a case here that the wicked, eternal damnation, 
Those that live righteous, well-doing, seeking glory and honor, that worketh good, inherit eternal life. Well, go on to chapter 3. What's the problem with that? Has there ever been anyone to do what's written here in chapter 2? No. It says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. So what we see is an amazing discrepancy between God's standard of righteousness, which is perfection, not only in deed, but in what Jesus showed us, the heart, and man's standard. Many men think they would fit this definition here in Romans chapter 2, but God says no. There's none good, none that doeth righteousness. It says in Ecclesiastes, there's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Or you can get to heaven by being perfect, but beware that you think you are what you're not. Because you're not, God has declared you not to be. So the dead are, are judged according to their works. It's our sin that sends us to heaven or to hell. Christ is the escape. So it's not receiving Christ or believing upon Him that sends you to hell. We're already condemned to hell before we even gave a thought to Jesus Christ. It's Christ that is the rescue, the life preserver, the Savior to God, the Savior from God. And so, the dead are judged according to their works. There are people that go around and say, well, you're going, you know, a man goes to hell if he does not accept Jesus. Well, maybe he did accept Jesus, he just didn't know. Or maybe Jesus has accepted us all and we don't have to know it or understand it. And you see where that goes. It goes to universalism. No, men go to hell because of their sin. Born into it, proof thereof is that they commit it. And it's according to the works. Therefore, we need a Savior. If eternal damnation is according to our works, we need a Savior. Christ is the escape. And also, keep this in mind, the righteous are judged according to their works for reward, so are the wicked according to damnation. I believe, and I believe the Scripture teaches, that there are levels of punishment, levels of judgment in hell, in the lake of fire. Well, how do I know this? Jesus told the people of His day that we'd be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for those cities who had seen the ministry of Christ and rejected Him. Now, if there isn't level of punishment in hell, then that makes no sense. How could Sodom and Gomorrah be better in the day of judgment if the sentence is the exact same? Makes no sense. Luke chapter 12 47 and 48, Jesus tells a parable about the stu a steward and his servants. And in verse 47, he says, And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given of him shall be much required, and to whom men have committed much of him they will ask the more. This falls right in line with what Christ said about Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities that heard his preaching. To whom much is given, much is required. There are many that will end up in hell because of their sin for lack of knowledge. And then there are those who have been confronted with the gospel of Christ. Those who have heard the truth, who have been confronted with the truth and willfully reject it. And unto those shall be a beating with many stripes. So there are levels of punishment in hell. The Bible indicates this. And 
Hell or heaven, rewards in heaven, rewards in hell are according to our works. We have to be educated by the Scriptures here. And Jesus is reminding the church that I will judge every one of you according to your works. Some people think, well, I've prayed this prayer and I accept Jesus as Savior, so I'm good. I can just keep living in sin. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And there's never a word of judgment ever going to come from Christ to me. And if, how dare you preach to me to repent. Judge not that you be not judged. You're woefully and willfully deceived that that's what you believe about Jesus, my friends. You're woefully and willfully deceived. Because the every one of you spoken of here <coughs> in Revelation 2 is the church. And if you're leading people astray with your false teaching concerning liberty to sin because you prayed a prayer, then I fear for you at the judgment seat of Christ. If you're born again, I don't fear for you in terms of eternal damnation, but I fear for you in terms of embarrassment and shame. I fear for you that you'll, have, you'll be empty-handed when it comes time to lay those crowns at the feet of Christ and you have nothing to give. For judgment is according to works. Back here in Revelation 2. Now, let's move on. In verse 24, Christ shifts His attention away from the church as a whole and He addresses the remnant. This is an exhortation to the believing remnant that was dwelling within a corrupt church full of false converts. Unto you, I say, the rest in Thyatira... He is talking to the, the remnant... As many as have not this doctrine, who have not bought into this spirit of Jezebel, teaching the church to commit fornication, spiritual adultery, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Even in the most corrupt of churches, God can and does reserve to Himself a remnant. If we go back to the days of Jezebel that we talked about last week, the origin of that spirit in the Bible, that spirit of Jezebel that's referenced here. Even in those days when Elijah the prophet fled from her face and had a pity party in the wilderness, God reminded him that I've reserved unto Myself 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal. Even as this country gets darker and grossly troublesome, we need to guard ourselves against the attitude that maybe we're the only church or we're the only remnant and everybody else is compromised and we're the only true church. That's a dangerous position to take. That pity party. It leads to ineffectiveness, to pride, to self-righteousness. God has reserved to Himself a remnant and it's not only here in, in, in Claremont, North Carolina. It's not. And if this light is extinguished, God will raise up a remnant somewhere else. We ought to be humble. We ought to be humble. There are those, praise God, who are saved in spite of their religion. Not because of it. I think of Roman Catholics. I think there are some Roman Catholics in these churches who may be saved in spite of their religion. But it certainly isn't because of it, because that religion does not teach Salvation by grace through faith. In fact, the, Pope, the new Pope recently made some comments that were very universalist in the way they were spoken concerning the salvation of all men and concerning the redemption of Christ that falls upon all men almost automatically. And he spoke about that in, context, in the context of our quote-unquote atheist brothers and sisters. Of course, he had to have uh, one of his spokes 
Miles come out later and, and, and reassure everyone that salvation is only within the Catholic Church. So they did make sure to say that later. And of course, that is not biblical. But there are some caught up in, in these corrupt, unrepentant, church, unrepentant churches who just don't know the depths of Satan. It says here in verse 24, "...as many as have not this doctrine in which have not known the depths of Satan." Some people are not even immature. They can't handle the truth. They don't see it. It's not willful, but it's ignorance. So, Christ in His mercy puts forth no other burden. To the naive and immature Christians who can't handle the truth, who have not known the depths of Satan, Christ says, I will put upon you in verse 24 no other burden. Okay, well that's good. I don't want to rest in that. That's Christ saying, look, you can't handle the truth, so I'm going to give you a limited responsibility. You know how Christ told the parable of the talents? One man was given ten talents, one man was given five, and one man was given one. Why do you think that is? The man given the one talent couldn't be trusted with ten. And that proved itself because he buried it in the earth. The man given five talents couldn't be trusted with, with ten, although he did increase the five, and was faithful. Do we want to be the one Christ gives one talent? Or five talents? Or do we want to be the one He entrusts with ten talents? Don't accept that you're naive and immature and that you're just an average Christian and God wouldn't call you to do anything and you're just going to live your Christian life with a limited responsibility as is written to this remnant here. Don't accept that. I don't accept that. I don't want to live according to the system. And stand before God one day and say, but I didn't hear you call me. When His Word says you're already called. Christ calls this remnant to simple obedience versus the deeper truths of God's Word and the deeper calls that He puts on those who will faithfully serve Him. Do you want to be one of those Christians that drinks the milk and can't handle the meat? That's what's written. This remnant here could only handle the milk and not the meat. We should be striving for the meat. We should be striving beyond the foundational doctrines of repentance and baptism and faith in Christ unto the doctrines or issues of the meat because every aspect of God's Word is important. I think it's Hebrews that talks about that. Now just as there are deep things of God, deep truths and wellsprings of wisdom in God's Word, there are also deep things of Satan. Deep things of Satan. And some of these have penetrated the churches in America and are being taught in the churches of America. And please understand, the deep things of Satan are not obvious. The deeper they are, the more deceptive they are. This idea that you can be a Christian by simply repeating a prayer is a deep thing of Satan because it's deeply deceptive. The deep things of Satan know how to twist the Scriptures and make them say something they do not say. Be careful. There are the deep things of Satan and some of them have penetrated the church of God. What American Christianity or American churchianity often calls a church, Jesus calls the deep things of Satan. Jesus calls the church at Thyatira and what it was teaching and that spirit of Jezebel the deep things of Satan. Some can't handle it. Christ said, I will put upon you no other burden. Just hold fast what you have until I come. 
Well, praise God for His mercy and His grace in that scenario. But I don't want to be one that Christ says, just hold fast what you have. I can't give you any other burden. That should not be our desire. We should want to do everything we can for our King out of gratitude for what He has done for us. But praise God, He has a remnant even in the most corrupt of churches. He has reserved unto Himself a remnant and that evil one cannot touch that remnant. Satan cannot touch that remnant. Jezebel cannot touch that remnant. No man can pluck it out of Christ's hand. There are two types of the remnant, and I believe we see that even today. One type is like what we have here at Thyatira, a believing remnant within a corrupt or a dead church body. As we go on to the church at Sardis, which is the dead church, Christ also directs His uh, speaking or His writing to a believing remnant within that dead church. So often there is a remnant within a dead church. There's a remnant within dead churchianity. But there are also remnant church bodies. The church at Smyrna, as we'll see later, the church at Philadelphia were remnant church bodies that dwelt in the midst of lies and deceit and corruption and compromise. Our desire as a church, if we are remnant believers, our desire should be that our church exists as a remnant church body. And that's why it's necessary to, to, to follow Scripture's injunctions about church discipline and to strive for the purity of this church body. That it would not go from a remnant body to a compromised body in which a believing remnant is forced to dwell. Interesting here, at the end of verse 24, Christ tells them He will put upon them no other burden. This is the remnant in Thyatira. In verse 25, But that which you have already, hold fast until I come. That ought to be the battle cry of the hour for all of us. Hold fast. As the days get darker, as things become more troublesome, as we see our freedoms as Christians taken from us day by day, the exhortation of Christ is not to form a political party, it's not to try to take over the government or instill a revolution. It's not to try to usher in God's kingdom on earth through good deeds. It's to hold fast. Hold fast and wait for the Deliverer. Our Deliverer is coming. Hold fast. Hold fast means to grasp and not let go. Like you would grasp your child with every ounce of strength if a tornado barreled through your house. So that whirlwind wouldn't jerk them from your arms. That's what Christ calls us to do. Hold fast till I come. Now this is the first time in any of these letters that there is a special stress placed upon Christ's coming for His church. This is the hope of a remnant engulfed by an apostate system. Christ's coming. That is our hope. Instead of complaining... And whining about what we see around us today, we should hold fast to our hope and we should preach it. I can't preach the gospel on the streets without preaching the coming of Christ. I'm not afraid to preach it, even though many genuine born-again believers would disagree with the premillennial position of the Scriptures. I don't care. I don't care if they're offended. I'm preaching a coming Christ. Because that is the hope 
for the remnant in times when they are engulfed by an apostate system. Now we come to the invocation and the blessing, or the invocation and the promise. At least here it's reversed. In the other churches we had a promise, I mean an invocation followed by a promise. Now we have a promise followed by an invocation. It changes. And it stays that way throughout the rest of the letters. I talked about that a few weeks ago. What might be being implied here. Verse 26, Christ addresses the remnant again. He that overcomes. Who is He that overcomes? Every time we visit this verse, we go to 1 John 5, 4 and 5 where it tells us exactly what an overcomer is. It defines for us an overcomer and we must understand that when reading these messages. 1 John 5, 4 and 5 For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. If you're born again, you overcome the world. If you don't overcome the world, you've never been born again. Plain and simple. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. The victory is faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? Verse 5, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. That is the overcomer. The genuine believer, not the false convert. So Christ is making a promise to the overcomers. That means the genuine remnant. Immature and naive though they may be, he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, he that overcomes will keep his works unto the end. That's automatic. Read Romans 8. Whom God foreknew He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's sanctification. Sanctification's been predestined. That's bearing fruit. That's growth in your life spiritually. That's been predestined for those that have been saved. So it's automatic. There's no fruit. There's no root. There's a root, there's fruit. That root is Christ. He that overcometh and keepeth my works to the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken in shivers, even as I received of my Father. And I will give him the morning star. This is a promise to the overcomer. This is a promise to the remnant dwelling within a corrupt system. This is a promise to the remnant church body. This is a promise to him that is truly saved. Now in these other letters, Christ is writing to the church, to the genuine believers in the church, and then He says, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He that overcometh, and then there's a promise. So Christ is addressing the church and saying to the genuine believers, listen. Listen to what the Spirit is saying. Why? Because he that overcomes will inherit this. Here, however, the church is rebuked, The remnant is addressed. And then a promise immediately follows the address to the remnant. So the promise talks or defines a genuine believer. And then that's followed by an invocation. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So in other words, Christ defines a genuine believer and then basically asks a question, if there are any of you around, hear what the Spirit has to say to the church. So you can see there's a switch What defined, more so defined the church body in the first three letters comes to define only a remnant in the remaining letters. Now the church 
Philadelphia was not rebuked. But even so, it was a remnant body in the midst of the spirits of Thyatira and Sardis that have uh, preceded and have existed and endured to this present day, producing Laodicea. So it's, it's a slight change that we should take note of. What is this promise? Well, the first aspect of that promise to the overcomer is one of authority. Christ promises the remnant body a day in which though they are nothing and though they are seem useless amidst an apostate system, there is a day coming when they would have authority. A promise of authority. And I will give Him power over the nations and He shall rule them with a rod of iron. This is a reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ and His millennial reign over the earth in fulfillment of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants in the Bible. A literal thousand year reign in which Christ will rule over this world and make right what has been made wrong. If there is no millennial kingdom, and this is all just spiritual language, and this is all just something ethereal that is taking place today, then this promise to the believer here makes absolutely no sense. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6 defines this millennial period, this kingdom, as a thousand years. The fulfillment of this promise, Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, on such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with Him a thousand years. Somebody said to me once, a dear brother whom I've preached with many times, I don't agree with his amillennial eschatology. I don't agree with his reformed ecclesiology. I think they're dangerous doctrines that can lead to dangerous things even though they may not have done so in his brother's life. But he said, how can you base a doctrine on a millennial reign of Christ on one little phrase in chapter 20 of Revelation that says a thousand years? Isn't that dangerous? I said, well, my friend, how many times does the Bible have to say something for it to be authoritative? And I said, besides you, beray your ignorance when you make a claim like that. Because the Old Testament, from the Torah down through the writings and the prophets, declares the millennial reign of Christ time and time and time again. Almost the whole book of Isaiah talks about that. All that Revelation 26 does is put a time frame on it. That's all it does. Go read Isaiah 11. There's your millennial kingdom. So if anybody teaches you that the millennium is not taught anywhere but Revelation 20, I don't think they've ever read the Old Testament. In Jude verses, chapter, verses 14 through 16, the prophet Enoch is quoted. And he says, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His saints to execute judgment. The saints are a part of that judgment. That's the second coming. Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 6 that we ought to be able to resolve matters between believers in the churches and not take it to law because we will judge angels. There's coming a time when we will be appointed to judge angels. What does that mean exactly? I don't know. But it's a, rule, a role of authority in judgment. Therefore, we shouldn't be going to court. We ought to be qualified, even the least esteemed in this church are qualified to judge in small matters in the church. Why make a mockery of the gospel before law? Romans 8.17 talks about the believer being a co-heir of Christ. Christ is an heir of authority. Read Psalm 2. We're co-heirs. That's a promise to the genuine believer. 2 Timothy 2 verses 12. 
says, if we suffer as a Christian, we will also reign with Him. That's a reigning with Christ. We will be appointed positions of authority in that millennial kingdom. How much authority we'll have will be based upon our works and our faithfulness in this life. I don't want to be content with authority over a little municipality. I want to have authority over a nation for the glory of Christ. But many would say that or deny a literal physical millennial reign of Christ and they would say, well, what would be the point in this? There's no purpose in it. This is foolish amillennial reasoning and it's reactionary theology. If there is no millennium, these verses or these promises to the believer here make no sense. In the eternal state, there is no sin. In the new heavens and the new earth, there is no sin. There is no conflict. There is no ruling with a rod of iron. So these verses make no sense. During that millennial reign of Christ, though, there is sin. People are born. And even the wicked nations of the earth gather themselves together at the end to try to overthrow Christ and His rule. He doesn't even have to lift a finger because fire comes down from heaven and devours them in the camp. But there is a purpose to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Number one, it's to fulfill the messianic promises made to the nation of Israel and to complete the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. God made promises to the nation of Israel that were unconditional. The promises made to Abraham were unconditional. And the things promised to him in terms of a land have never been fulfilled. The things promised to him in terms of a kingdom, in terms of David and a kingdom, and the throne of David have not been fulfilled in Messiah yet. This kingdom served to fulfill those things. The millennial kingdom also serves to demonstrate man's utter failure in every single dispensation. Whether it be in a dispensation of innocence in the Garden of Eden, man shows that he fails. Or whether it be in the presence of a ruling king who rules with the rod of iron and has demonstrated all power and authority by overthrowing the nations of this earth at Armageddon, man still fails. Man still will rebel. He utterly fails. Number three, Isaiah 2.17 tells us why there is a millennial kingdom. Isaiah 2.17 says, And the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. The purpose of that kingdom is to exalt the Lord over the haughtiness of men. And then Isaiah 11 verse 9, a great chapter concerning the millennial kingdom. It talks about the wolf dwelling with the lamb, the leopard lying down with the kid. It's a time when the curse of sin that's been placed on creation is lifted. Although sin still dwells in the hearts of men that are born and die during that period. It says here in verse 9 of chapter 11, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's not talking about a new heavens and a new earth. It's talking about this earth. The purpose of the millennium is to fill the earth, having been cursed with sin, with the knowledge of the Lord as it was in the days of Eden. 
So there are four purposes right there. How can any man say there's no point or purpose? That's ignorance. Ignorance of the Scriptures. Someone look up Psalm 2. This is one of the great Messianic Psalms. It's the first Messianic Psalm in the Scriptures. It's a great Psalm to preach on the streets concerning Jesus Christ. Not a lowly weakling hanging on the cross, but a conquering King whom God has anointed. Someone read Psalm 2, 8 and 9. Listen to what is said to Christ, the anointed, and how similar it is to what is promised the believer here at the church in Thyatira. Psalm 2, 8 and 9. Oftentimes, verse 8 is quoted as the great missionary promise. Ask of me, God says, and I'll give you the heathen to go out and win to the gospel. You read verse 9, the heathen aren't appointed for the gospel here. They're appointed to be broken with the rod of iron. This is talking about Christ being given authority over all nations of the world to rule them with a rod of iron. Now notice the description here and how similar it is to what is promised to the overcomer in Revelation 2. Reigning with Christ. Reigning with Him. That's an amazing thing to look forward to. Why be attached to this life when we have true wealth, true riches, true authority promised to us later? Why exert all our effort? Kind of like Anthony was talking about yesterday at Annalisa's graduation. I really appreciated that. Exerting all this effort to be successful in a fallen life and a fallen system. Ignoring how we may be used by God in His coming kingdom. Seeking wealth, power, and fame here, and it'll dissipate. And caring nothing for that eternal wealth and authority and fellowship that endures. How foolish could it be to gain the whole world and lose your soul for the lost man? But for the Christian, how foolish to put all this effort into this life and to miss out on the blessings of authority in Christ's kingdom. Hebrews chapter 2, I want to address this now that the amillennialist would say that Christ is ruling and reigning now, that Satan was kicked out of heaven at the cross, that most of these things here in the book of Revelation were fulfilled by 70 A.D., that there is no use for the nation of Israel, that God has divorced them, that the church is the new Israel, and everything would be interpreted scripturally. Such ideas would be used to justify the church taking over the world and persecuting quote-unquote heretics and burning witches at the stake and get you in a lot of trouble. But look at what it says here in Hebrews 2 about Christ's reign now. He is reigning in the hearts of His people. But is He actually reigning as described there in Psalm 2 now? And you'd really have to be blind to look around and say yes. But here in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, it says this, Quoting Psalm 8, another one of the Messianic passages. Thou hast put all things in subjection under His feet. For in that He put all in subjection under Him, He left nothing that is not put under Him. But now we see not yet all things put under Him. All of Christ's enemies have been put under His footstool because what is future is as good as done when God declares it. But the writer says, but now we see this not yet. We see Jesus made in the form of a servant and then He talks about a little lower than the angels 
uh, in the rest of the chapter and how Jesus was first appointed to bring salvation. So Christ ruling in a position of authority as described in Psalm 2 is spoken here in Hebrews as being not yet. Why? Because Christ came once as a suffering servant. God instituted because of the rejection of Israel to, to raise up a people, Jew and Gentile, for a peculiar purpose called the church to bring Him glory and to take the gospel to the ends of the world according to His plan and purpose. It doesn't deny that Christ will reign with that authority. That's as good as done where God is concerned. But it's not yet in terms of our perspective. Hebrews 10, 12, and 13 would also verify this. I don't know how the, the amillennialist misses this passage. It's so clear. It says here in verse 12, But this man who is Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Christ is on the right hand of the Father. Stephen saw this in Acts 7, although Christ was standing when Stephen saw Him. There's a reason for that. I don't want to get off base today. Sat down on the right hand of God, verse 13, from henceforth expecting until His enemies may be made His footstool. He's sitting at the right hand of God, expecting. That means He knows it's going to happen until His enemies may be made His footstool. His enemies be made His footstool when God says, Go, son. Go. Go back. Set up your kingdom. First, He's going to come back in the air and get His church. That midnight cry. When the Father says, Son, go get your children. And then He'll come back with His saints. Not an instantaneous U-turn in the air, like those who deny the rapture would say. But following a, a judgment seat and a marriage supper of the Lamb, Christ will come back with His saints to execute judgment. Not yet. Expecting. But as good as done. Thankfully, Christ reigns in the hearts of His people today. One day He will reign over all people, whether they allow Him to reign in their hearts or not. It's as good as done. Presidents and princes will have nothing to say but to bow down before the King. I don't care if you've got a nuclear arsenal at your fingertips or not. And make no mistake, we may be a superpower in, on this planet, but God could use a band of horsemen to overthrow this nation if He wanted to. He doesn't need another nuclear superpower. He doesn't need a China. He could use an Afghanistan to overthrow this wicked country if He wanted to. We're foolish to think otherwise. First aspect of the promise, authority is promised to the believer. But verse 28 gives us a second aspect of that promise and that's rescue. Not only is the overcomer promised authority in that millennial kingdom, but He's promised rescue. Simply stated in verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. By the way, the setting up of Christ's kingdom on earth is violent. It's called the tribulation or the great tribulation. But to the overcomer is promised the morning star. Who is this morning star? Revelation 22.16 tells us very clearly, not the son of the morning Lucifer, but the morning star. Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent Mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The morning star is the one who raptures His church before the dark hours preceding the dawn of the millennial kingdom. So not only is authority promised 
in that kingdom for the overcomer, but rescue from the violent setting up of that kingdom is promised. And I think that's what's pictured here. As the morning star shines brightly in those dark hours before the dawn, the morning star is for him that overcomes. And plenty of other Scripture would back up such an interpretation. Clear Scriptures. Verse 29, the invocation. Just like in all the other letters, it tells us that the audience goes beyond the local church at Thyatira in John's day. This is a type of an unrepented and corrupted church. And so Christ is addressing the believing remnant, although it may be small. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Here, unlike the previous three letters, the genuine believer is defined first. Then there is an invocation given to anybody that might be a genuine believer in that church. In the previous three letters, it's reversed. Christ gives a promise to the church and then defines a genuine believer. Assuming that the church is full of genuine believers, even though there were some things that needed to be rebuked. Local church in John's day, a type of an unrepented and corrupted church we see even today. We see it manifest in Roman Catholicism and a lot of these dead Protestant churches who've gone back to their Catholic mothers. We see it around us today. It's also a prophetic foreview. Ephesus was the apostolic church down to about the end of the first century. Smyrna was the persecuted church that underwent ten official persecutions at the hands of the Roman emperors down to the days of Constantine at around AD 312. Then we had the church at Pergamos. The church married to the world that began with Constantine all the way down uh, until around A.D. 5600 when the Pope became recognized as the vicar of Christ on earth and the universal bishop of the church. Now we're in that Thyatira church period. The devil's millennium. You see, the devil had his millennium. The dark ages. Roughly A.D. 500 to A.D. 1500 or we could say A.D. 607 specifically. That was back in um, when I talked about the church at, uh, at um, Pergamos. Talked about how in AD 607, Pope Boniface was officially recognized as universal bishop. AD 607 to AD 1517. Who knew what, knows what important event took place on October 31st, 1517? Anybody? Martin Luther, what did he do? 95 Theses to the door of the church. So You ought to go read that 95 Theses sometime. Martin Luther had a little ways to go in terms of a proper understanding of biblical doctrine at that point. But he's not soft on the Pope. As a Catholic monk, he nailed those theses to the door. And anybody that thinks that we need to be in cahoots with Catholics need to go read what Luther wrote because it's blunt. It's blunt. You can get it for free. You can download it uh, on your iBooks, on your phone for free. I've got the 95 Theses on mine. It's interesting, entertaining reading. Luther was very blunt, so he's actually entertaining to read. The height of the papacy was during the Thyatira church period. During this period, approximately 50 million professing Bible believers were martyred at the hands of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church is the greatest enemy of the Bible, the greatest enemy of religious liberty in the history of mankind. It's not Islam. 
It's not communism. It's the Roman Catholic Church. And to deny that is to be profoundly ignorant of history. In fact, in the Western or in the Eastern Empire, in the Byzantine Empire, in the Byzantine area, when the Muslims took over, the Muslims and the Christians largely dwelled in peace. It was the Catholic Church and their crusades that upset that balance. Just like if you leave whites and blacks along here in this country, they'll largely dwell in peace until the government tries to stir up racial hatred. That's when the problem comes. And that's what the Catholic Church is good at doing, stirring up racial hatred, stirring up religious hatred. That's what it's done its entire existence. And it's martyred those overcomers who possessed the Scriptures and believed it. Fifty million, that puts, that makes the abortion holocaust in this country seem quite minor. Not to minimize that, but if we forget the other holocaust and forget that the spirit of that same church is the same today, we're in trouble. Listen to what Spurgeon, everybody quotes Spurgeon. Listen to what he had to say. This is his words. It is the duty of every Christian to pray against Antichrist. And as to what the spirit of Antichrist is, no sane man ought to raise a question if it's not popery in the church of Rome or in the church of England. There is nothing in the world that can be called by that name. We must have no truce or treaty with Rome. We would not lay a hand upon her priest. We would not touch a hair of their heads. Let them be free. But their doctrine we would destroy from the face of the earth as the doctrine of devils. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew chapter 13 about the kingdom of heaven is like a... I'm going to read it exactly so that I don't misquote it. Matthew 13, 33. Jesus said, Another parable He spoke unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. Some people look at that and say, wow, that's the power of the gospel. That woman is the gospel and she sows a little leaven and it takes over the world. Praise God. That's how the amillennialist would interpret that passage. No, my friends, that's not positive. That's negative. That shows the subtle ability of false doctrine to corrupt the outward kingdom of God. Kingdom of heaven is the outward, the literal, the physical. And we see that that does happen in the millennial kingdom because the nations... When Satan is loosed for a little season, those nations gather against the holy city and against Christ's government. But you go to Luke and it talks about this same parable in terms of the kingdom of God. Kingdom of heaven, always when you read the Gospels, remember the kingdom of heaven is the outward manifestation, the physical manifestation of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is the inward spiritual side. They are one under the rule and authority of Christ. Okay? One emphasizes the physical, one emphasizes the spiritual. Luke 13, 21. Whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? Verse 20, it is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leaven. This speaks to the corruption of the gospel. Just takes a little. Just a little seed. Just as Jezebel, a woman, sowed in the church in Thyatira. And the whole, before you know it, is leavened. And this is an example of what took place in the Catholic Church, and in Christendom during this devil's millennium. The little seed that had been sown in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, came to full bloom during this Thyatira church period where the whole was leavened. 
The woman in this parable Jesus speaks of is that spirit of Jezebel at Thyatira. How easily can the church be corrupted? How easily can the gospel be corrupted? But praise God, He has the ultimate victory. Though the nations of the earth gather against Christ to besiege His holy city at the end of the millennium, it doesn't even take a sword to be raised. Fire comes down from heaven and puts a quick end to the matter. That's all God has to do to put an end to it. I want to end today by just sharing with you a few interesting events. Notable events from this Thyatira church period, roughly A.D. 500 to A.D. 1500, in the political realms of Christendom. And it's almost laughable and entertaining. It's almost comedic to think that some would call Roman Catholicism a church or the Pope an actual man of God when you read some of this garbage. Unbelievable. You had something that was appealed to by Nicholas I. He was a pope in the 9th century, 858-867, called the Pseudo-Isidorian Decretals. This was the most colossal literary fraud in all of history. It was supposedly a doctrine penned by some of the earliest bishops of Rome in direct descent from Peter that gives the pope authority not only over the church but over political governments. And so this Nicholas I found this lost document that was also a forgery to convince the kings of Europe that he was actually in charge of them too. And he acted based upon this document and was the first pope to actually wear a crown. So they drummed up a fake document to convince the kings of Europe, hey, I actually am in control of you too, not just the church. And the people bought it. Unbelievable. Between Nicholas I and Gregory VII, 858 to 1073, this was the midnight of the Dark Ages. Stephen VI, who was a pope, actually had the body of his predecessor, Pope Formosus, dug up. They had a trial for this dead body. They condemned this dead body. And then they cut it into pieces and threw it into the Tiber River. So in other words, one vicar of Christ had the previous vicar of Christ dug up, cut into pieces, excommunicated, condemned to hell, and thrown in the Tiber River. A year later, this Stephen was strangled and murdered himself. It's the popery, the papacy. Check this out. A.D. 904 to 963 has been known as the pornocracy. The papal palace there in Rome was literally turned into a brothel by the sons of Pope Sergius III and his mistress. So this pope had a mistress who had children and they turned the palace into a brothel. The pornocracy. Guess what happened when one of the nuns or one of the women got pregnant? Guess what they did with that little baby? They killed it. And guess where they found the remains of these little babies buried in places around Europe? When this happened all the time, they found them buried in these little... Uh, tunnels that would connect the monasteries with the convents. And you want me to believe that the Roman Catholic Church is officially pro-life? Give me a break. They did abortions long before we knew what an abortion was in Western civilization or in, in, a, in American society, excuse me. And they did it to cover up their sins just like people today do. So where do we learn that from? We learned it from Catholicism. That's how priests have been able to hide their sins 
when they stepped out of that vow of celibacy, which is a doctrine of devils, according to Paul, not a doctrine of Christ. Forbidding to marry is a doctrine of devils. 1 Timothy chapter 4. So you had this pornocracy. You had the practice of simony. Who knows what that is? Anybody? What's simony? It's the purchase or sale of a church office. You know, somebody doesn't just become a pope. You know, they start out like as a priest and then you have to kind of ascend all the ranks. Just like in karate, you start out as a white belt and you have to go through all these colors to get the black belt. So, you know, a priest becomes a... I don't know what they all are. It's just all this ridiculous dividing of clergy into ranks. But this John the 19th, in A.D. 1024, bought the papacy, paid for it with money, and he passed through all the clerical ranks in a single day to be proclaimed pope. Benedict the Ninth, in A.D. 1033, was crowned as a 12-year-old boy after the exchange of money and bargaining with wealthy Roman families. He, was a, he later became a murderer, an adulterer. He was known for robbing pilgrims and as a hideous, heinous criminal. The Lateran Fourth Council in A.D. 1215 officially proclaimed transubstantiation. Who knows what that is? It's where we get the word hocus-pocus from in the English language. When that priest waves over the bread and the wine in the Roman Catholic Church, he uses a form of the Latin that sounds like hocus-pocus and they believe that the actual bread, that the bread and the wine are actually transforming into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. And in Roman Catholic communion, it's only the priests that get the wine, by the way, not the, not the laity. They only get the wafer. And so they believe that that wafer is actually Jesus. And when the priest is bringing it down the aisle, the church is paying homage to a wafer that they believe is Jesus. That's transubstantiation. The idea that the Lord's Supper is not a memorial to do in remembrance of Christ, but it is a fresh crucifying of the Son of God and putting to an open shame. That's what Hebrews calls it. This was proclaimed official doctrine at Lateran 4 during the Dark Ages and it's never been rescinded. This same lateral council, by the way, also forbade the reading of Scripture or the translating of Scripture into vernacular tongues or into the common language of men. So the same council that said the wine and the bread turn into Jesus also said it was a crime to translate the Scriptures into the common language. Unbelievable. Pope Innocent III, A.D. 1198 to 1216, is known as the one of the most powerful and influential popes in all of Roman Catholic history, listen to his own words in an inaugural address. The successor of St. Peter stands midway between God and man, below God, above man, judge of all, and judged of none. In another letter he wrote to the Pope, has been committed not only the whole church, but the whole world with the right of finally dispensing the imperial and all other crowns. All things in heaven and in earth are subject unto the Pope, the Vicar of Christ. And we want to say that he's a brother in Christ? We want to say that the Pope today is a brother in Christ when this is what has been proclaimed as official doctrine concerning the Pope? So in other words, the murder, the adulterer, the pornocracy, Pope, all these guys, they were the Vicar of Christ. And we're supposed to believe that. Descended from Peter, who was never in Rome in the first place. He was in Babylon. Read First and Second Peter. The churches at Babylon salute you. That's not a secret code word for Rome. 
Why would Peter use a code word when Paul didn't use a code word for Rome? Paul was in Rome. Peter was the apostle to the Jews. The Council of Toulouse, uh, Toulouse, I don't know how to pronounce that, it's French, I never did like the French language. AD 1229, the Bible was banned for use by all people except for high church officials. And so in other words, it was made a crime to even possess the Scriptures unless you were a high church official. Wicked. From AD 1309 to 1378, this is where it gets real comical you had what was called the Babylonian captivity of the church. This is another, you know, everybody wants to try to take the New Testament and what happened with Israel and apply it to the church. That's typical Roman Catholicism. That's why they call this the Babylonian captivity. This is the Catholic name for it. It was a period of roughly 70 years when popes elected by French kings actually moved the seat of the church to Avignon, France, and they took it out of Rome. And so for 70 years, the papacy wasn't in Italy, it was in Rome. That was called the Babylonian captivity of the church. In A.D. 1378, you had what was called the Great Schism in Roman Catholic history. Gregory VI, who was Pope at Avignon, decided to go back to Rome. Let's move back to Rome. And he died there in 1378. Well, the next pope, Urban VI, decided to stay at Rome. Well, the French priests didn't like this, so they elected their own pope, Clement VII. And he started to reign from Avignon. So for 39 years, you had two popes, two colleges of cardinals, and two factions of alignment in Europe. You're either with the Catholic Church in France or the Catholic Church in Rome. Now it gets even better. A.D. 1409, you had the Council of Pisa. Both councils finally decided to meet and they deposed both popes. And one, Alexander V, was elected um, as pope in agreement with both councils. But the other guys refused to step down. So now you got three popes. You had the pope, who was the one in Rome. You had the anti-pope, who was the one in Avignon. And then you had the counter-pope, who was the third pope appointed by this council of Pisa. The successor of the first counter-pope, John XXIII, was actually ordained a priest a day before he was appointed pope. It's kind of funny because you have a John XXIII much later in the 20th century and you wonder why were there two John XXIII's? A pope's not supposed to take the same name. And it's because the first John XXIII was a counter-pope. And so the Catholic, Catholic Church today doesn't recognize that. So you had three popes. It wasn't until the Council of Constance... In 1414, it met for four years. This is the same council that condemned... You know who was condemned and burned at the stake at the Council of Constance? Famous preacher from Bohemia just prior to the Reformation. Anybody know his name? John Huss. John Huss, a Baptist preacher. Baptistic preacher burned at the stake. He was uh, 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 in camaraderie with the Lollards and John Wycliffe. He was a bold preacher of the Gospel. He was burned at the stake. They promised himself safe passage to Constance where he'd be able to answer and explain himself. And that safe passage was not given. Typical lies of the Roman Catholic Church. That was in, I think it was in 14, the council lasted from 1414 to 1418. So I don't remember exactly what year Huss was burned. I have to look that up. But at this council of Constance, all three popes were deposed and Martin V was elected. The Pope and the anti-Pope conceded and said, okay, we'll step down, but the counter-Pope refused. 
And so this was unresolved until 1447 when you finally got back to one pope. So from 1378 to 1447, you had more than one pope, and every one of them said they were the true pope, and nobody really knows to this day. That's the kind of comedic mockery that went on in the name of Jesus Christ during the Thyatira church period. And in terms of prophetic foreview, isn't it just a picture of exactly what is described here? The spirit of Jezebel will lead people to do some of the most foolish and ridiculous things. And even more so, it will lead those committed to their religion to believe that this stuff was actually of God. You know, the typical Roman Catholic response today was, okay, there were some bad things that happened in history, but this is still the church. And we are to obey the institute that God has given and not question it. Martin Luther was told not to question it. It is the church. No, it's not the church, my friends. We have every right to question that which calls itself a church by the authority and exhortation of the Word of God. That never was a church. In the beginning, it, there were churches. These churches became corrupted. And what the ecclesiastical monster known as the Roman Catholic Church that developed in Europe out of this during the Dark Ages has never been a church according to a Bible definition, and it never will be. So we're fools to think that Catholicism and what it teaches is biblical doctrine and that there is room for partnership with those who adhere to this doctrine. Now, can there be practicing Catholics who are truly born again? Yes, in spite of their religion, not because of it. And I believe such people will eventually come out of that with any understanding. And many have, praise God. That's what Luther did. It's what Calvin did. It's what Zwingli did. That's what the Reformers did. And they did it, praise God, because of suffering Baptistic Bible-believing Christians who never partnered with that nonsense and sowed the seeds of Revelation, a Reformation all over Europe long before Calvin or Luther were ever born. And because these seeds had been sown, men like Luther and Calvin were able to see the truth. Who knows what the first book ever printed on a printing press was? The Bible. The Bible was the first book ever printed on the printing press invented by Gutenberg during the end of the Dark Ages. Praise God for that. And it's that printing of the Word of God on a printing press that allowed these truths to take root and give us the Reformation and eventually lead to the establishing of freedom of conscience here on the American continent, which became a great light to the Gentiles during the missionary age and still is to a smaller extent. There is still a light here. Travel to another country. Travel to the third world. You'll see what I'm talking about. But that light is flickering and that testimony is waning. Therefore, we should hold fast. Hold fast until the Lord comes. So, the message to the church at Thyatira. Next week, I'm going to try to get into the message to the church at Sardis which is a prophetic foreview of the Reformation period. A church that had a name, it was living, but it was dead. You know, folks, when Christ gives us a commission, when He gives us a call, and we start it and don't complete it, we're like the church at Sardis. So I want to encourage you to reflect upon that this week. What it is to be called by God, what it is to, be, to make a commitment, and then not to fulfill it. Because that really is the, the heart of the message to the church at Sardis, which, by the way, you'll find no commendation in that message. 
There are two churches where there are no commendations. One of them is Sardis, the other is Laodicea. I mean, even Christ found something positive to say to Thyatira. But when it comes to those who had been called and had made a commitment and didn't fill it, fulfill it, there is no commendation. I don't understand why a church would name itself Sardis. There is a church out on Highway 10 when you go past uh, the, the intersection with Highway 127 that's called Sardis. I don't understand that. I've never understood it. Because there's nothing positive that Christ has to say to Sardis. He speaks to a remnant. He rebukes the church. So I've never understood that. Maybe you can ponder upon that this week and come up with an answer next week. I think they have a woman pastor out there too. So <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Oh, really? I've only ever seen one. I don't understand that. It's kind of weird. but I mean, I've never seen a church called Laodicea. I mean, but who knows? I've seen Philadelphia. I've never seen a Thyatira. I've never seen a Pergamos. I've seen Ephesus and Smyrna. Why Sardis? Doesn't make any sense. So we'll try to get into that, and then I don't know, we may finish that before I leave the country. I'll be leaving June the 19th, going for a month. We're going to be taking the gospel down to the Israeli backpackers who tend to frequent some haunts in Peru and Ecuador this time of year. So if you can be in prayer for that. Um, and uh, we'll just proceed along, probably until the Lord comes. Uh, I hope He comes before I finish this book. That's depressing to think that he, <laughs> He'd wait that long. <laughs> So anyway, I think the pizza will be coming here. Let's, let's just close in prayer and uh, we'll have a time of fellowship. Thank you, Lord, for this message that you've given us today. I, I thank you um, for uh, the truth of God's Word, the deep things of God that are there to protect us against the deep things of Satan. Father, I pray that we would be a remnant body, that we would hold fast until Christ come, and that we would never be satisfied with Christ giving us a limited responsibility Lord, or just a, a simple call to obedience that can't handle the things of a deep calling. May we not be satisfied with that. May we labor in view of not only the judgment seat of Christ, but the promises of authority and rescue that You've given the church. May, be, may we, we labor for that on a daily basis. May that be the anchor of our hope. And may it be what gives us courage in these darkening days as we try to raise our families and we try to be a witness to the lost and encourage and exhort one another. Thank you for these brethren that have gathered here today. Thank you for the freedom we still have to worship. Bless the food that you're going to provide here. I pray that it would strengthen us. And even more so, bless the spiritual food. I pray that you would give us time this week to discuss these things with our families at home and to revisit these scriptures. And Lord, may the fellowship we have in the ensuing moments uh, also be a sweet source of spiritual food. In Jesus' name, amen.